Hello, and welcome to another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey. Today's episode is a little bit of a deviation from my usual format. This is an interview I recorded as a live stream with lots of audience participation. With the huge social justice movement going on right now, it doesn't seem responsible to me as a content creator not to address it. And as a Black person, it doesn't make sense for me to ignore something that is so significant in my life. I've experienced racism in a number of forms and dealt with being gaslit and told that what I thought was happening wasn't so. Right now, with all the vitriol and all the open expressions of racism, anyone who doesn't realize that we are not living in a post-racial society, just isn't paying attention. This conversation with Irvin is all about focusing on what we can do to be better as individuals, as organizations, as citizens, as friends. We can discover what types of bias we maybe have and reduce the damage that bias can do. This is a great time to have this conversation because of the amount of miscommunication that's occurring right now, because people aren't validating lived experiences of others, and because people are forgetting that sometimes someone with a different perspective who doesn't have your same lived experience needs a little bit of grace and patience. Urban approaches bias in a really user-friendly way. So don't be afraid to listen to this. This isn't going to be a difficult episode to get through. This, to me, was a very uplifting conversation. And even though we're not 100% on the same page on everything, we address that that's not necessary. We don't all have to be exactly like the people that we communicate with, the people that we work with, the people that we enjoy talking to. We don't have to agree on everything. We can and should surround ourselves with diverse opinions because it makes us stronger. And when you're around people that are different from you, they are the ones that reveal your weak points and your biases. But I really love the way Irvin expresses himself. So let's just get right into it. School nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus time to handle business breakfast. You don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the school nutrition dietitian. navigate today's conversation. I saw that you posted a really well thought out, clearly expressed message. I think it's been about a week ago mm-hmm. about how you felt affected by current events and how bias affects us as a country and as smaller communities And with your extensive background in motivational speaking and training teams and lifting people up, I thought, who better to reach out to than you? And also being a Black man working in school nutrition is also unique. So added to all your other extensive work experience, you have that extra bit of insight or that different lens that you're seeing all of this through. Yeah. And you're also super chill. Yeah. And I said, that's who we need to bring in <laughs> to this conversation. <laughs> I said, because I've been str- really struggling with managing the stress around current events. COVID was already kind of beating the life out of us. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of this, another layer of stress. So, of course, what I want for everyone is for them to be as effective as possible in their jobs. Our mission is to feed children to fuel the future. Mm -hmm. But if we're operating under unconscious bias, we could damage the children that we come into contact with. And nobody wants that. So I think this is such an important conversation to have. Absolutely. Uh Uh-huh. 
Well, thank you for having me. I'm pretty excited and honored by uh, being asked and looking forward to just jumping in and engaging in the conversation. Yes. And so you already have done a lot of research prior to this point around bias. And so you were prepared to give this presentation or something similar this year before COVID. Is that right? Right. I was actually slated with a, a colleague of mine to do some do a keynote address or one of the breakouts at ANC in Nashville, basically on bias and diversity. So we've been working on that. We had many plans of things that we wanted to do. And so we were pretty excited about it. But when COVID happened, all of that kind of went away. I was also actually planning, working with a local system that was having some problems with, let's call it cultural sensitivity. And so they were uh, talking to me about coming in and just sharing with their team some things that they could do to try to address address what's going on. So that's kind of how I got started. I've always been very intrigued with race relations and and all of that. Being a black man and usually in the minority and every every place that I've worked, so it's always been something that I was interested in. But it was just kind of like a perfect the timing just kind of all came together and when all of the things just kind of spun out of control with the death of George Floyd, it was, it was kind of timely. When you, we hear the term bias, bias has, has a very negative connotation, but what I want people to understand is all of bias is, is it's a preference. You have a, a preference of one thing over another, but before we get into it, I just want to kind of see if I can demystify the term. So if you can show the first slide and what I want to ask the audience is this, Th these are real people with the Cincinnati ballet. Five of these people are biological mothers, but they all have children. How is that possible? I want to give just a couple minutes to give people a chance to think about how just is it possible that we have seven dancers, but only five of them are biological mothers, but they all have children. They're seven dancers, but two of them are men. Now, when you think about what you went through your mind, some of you probably thought they're adoptive mothers or some of you, who knows what you assumed, but how many of you thought that two of the dancers were actually male? Thank you everyone for continuing to participate. Yes, that was my assumption too. Didn't even occur to me that not all dancers are female. We have these ideas and these concepts because we see the world as we are, not as the world is. All the biases is really just a preference that you have. You have, you prefer Pepsi over Coke. Some people prefer uh, tea to coffee. Some people prefer blondes over brunettes. I remember growing up in the, as a child in the 70s that everybody remembers Charlie's Angels. Well, most of America was going crazy and thought that Farrah Fawcett was everything. But Farrah Fawcett didn't do it for me and my friends. Jacqueline Smith could have got all of my lunch money. I mean, when I say all, she could have got all my lunch money. She's 70-something years old. She could probably get my lunch money right now. I was biased because I have a bias towards dark hair versus lighter hair. Not to say that anything's wrong with blondes, but that's what the bias is. But the problem with the bias is when the bias turns into a blind spot and that can happen to an individual and it can happen to an organization. The thing about a blind spot is if you've been driving and you realize you have, you have a blind spot is that's an area that you can't see. You don't know that you have a blind spot in, the, in that area because we see the world as it is, as we see it, not as the world actually is, because we all have this filter that we see the world through. I have some colleagues and I, it's a predominant, obviously I'm in school nutrition. I work as a nutrition coordinator. My colleagues often would tell me, Irvin, you need to think like a woman. When I'm supervising, she said, you can't think like a man, you have to think like a woman. Well, I've been a woman exactly zero days in my life. 
I have exactly zero experience thinking like a woman. And I recently had this conversation with my colleague. And I told her, I said, look, stop telling me to think like a woman because I've been thinking like a man my entire life. If you want me to think like a woman, then tell me what to think. I understood what she was, what she was attempting to tell me was genders tend to have certain behaviors. But the, the point was, I don't have any insight into how to think that way because I've never even been in that situation. And a lot of times, because we think that the world sees, the, uh, sees things the way that we see things, we can be off because the only perspective we have is our perspective. And if some people have seen me do training before, and when I'm talking about training about how you or your knowledge and what I tell people often, if you really don't know enough to really know, you don't know everything there is to know about a situation. And the example I use in school nutrition, because it's predominantly women is this, I say, I have two sons that I love tremendously. I was blessed to be in the labor room when both of them were born. One was born naturally, one was born with C-section. So because I was in the room, in the labor room for the entire birth, I think I understand what it's like to have a baby. And they all look at me with that, with that, that's the look that I'm looking for. That exact same look of, don't have a clue what it is to, what it's like to have a baby right well that's the same thing that comes when it comes to different people and biases because you have a blind spot because you don't know you can only base it off of what you what your experience and that blind spot can cause you to ignore a group of people and not even realize that you're that you're treating them differently or that you're doing anything or offending anyone Right. And it, and it goes deep. So it can absolutely be unintentional and anyone, anyone can do it. This isn't reserved for one group of people. So I like the way you explain that. The thing about bias and opinions is that everybody's opinion is 100% perfect, makes it 100% perfect sense to them. But many times it doesn't make any sense to the people that they're, that they're talking to. If anybody has a teenager, especially a teenage boy, they can come up with some creative things that make perfect sense to them, but doesn't make any sense to anyone else. And the same thing applies when we, we talk about a bias, because everyone believes that the way I see the world and the way that I believe and what I feel is how everybody sh feels or should feel. And that is not, that is definitely not the case because we all when we're looking for whether we're right we want everybody wants to be right and we look to be right and we there's this thing um, in our thinking and happens automatically called confirmation bias and what confirmation bias is this if somebody told you that you were going to see a comedian and this comedian is the funniest comedian you've ever seen in your life and you trust that source, then you're going to actually look for ways to confirm what you were going in already believing that this person is an incredible comedian. Or if they, you go to see somebody and they say, this person is terrible, he absolutely sucks. Then you will look for ways to confirm what you already believe. Same thing plays out all the time in the, especially in today what's going on because America has gotten so so polarized that we don't we look for when we especially when we go to the news and i hear a lot of people saying news media the, the left-wing media right-wing media and all that it's all it all has the same goal and that's to make money so that's my personal opinion about news is news companies are here to make money but we believe what we want to believe so whatever your uh, political slant you will look for things that confirm what you already believe. Very few people will go out there and try to find something to disprove what they and their friends actually believe and what they talk about. And they'll share examples of, of, between each other. And I've seen it on both sides. 
me, when it comes to watching news, I do my best to try to watch all the, the, the different sides of the news, even news that's going on over in Europe. And it's so interesting that what, you know, the different stories, the same story can have five or six different spins because we, when we share and we give examples of what we believe and how we feel, we look, our mind is drawn to look for things that will confirm what it is that we already believe. So when, if you want to fight bias, then you want to make sure that you as an individual that you try to make sure that you are paying attention to if you might be, you, you, you might be looking to confirm what you, what it is that you believe because you, how you can test it. Look on your Facebook, look on your social media page, look at the things that you share. Do you ever share something that is contrary to what you, is contrary to what you believe? I definitely have, as a black man, I definitely have a position in this, in what's going on right now. And most of my friends post things that support the pain that we're feeling or that re-emphasize the pain that we're feeling. But when I go to some other pages, they, I see them, them uh, posting things that support what they, what they believe. This is one of the problems that I found, and we can talk about this when we talk about when we talk about dialogue. But we really should start with where we are when, when it talks to having a conversation or dialogue. We should, really should start off with where we are and be aware that our own bias and our own blind spots, our only uh, our own bias and blind spots, can keep us from being effective in in the job that we're doing and in the relationships that we're having. And the thing that you got to remember about, about a blind spot is you don't know you have a blind spot. If somebody doesn't tell you that you might have a blind spot and you're open to hear and receive it, you won't ever know that you have a blind spot. How do you know whether or not your organization has a problem with bias? So that was a great example, looking at your Facebook and seeing if it's become an echo chamber. Does everybody agree with you? How would you be able to identify that in an organization? And beyond Facebook, how do you identify it in yourself? When you put that image up at the beginning, I definitely couldn't figure out how two of those sets of legs didn't belong to someone who was a biological mother. But it's not every day that somebody calls you out on your bias or puts up a mirror to your bias. How do you find it on your own? You really can't, I don't believe you can find a bias on your own. You have, if you're biased until somebody shines the light on it, you will just, you'll walk around and it's like this. If you love, if you love coffee and you've never had a good cup of tea, you would never, you would never realize that you are biased against tea. The only way you can know that you have a preference towards one thing or another is when you're confronted with a choice. And this is a thing that happens in organizations. I need to make sure that the, the audience understands that biases are part of our nature as human beings. It's a part of being human. The problem is when the bias becomes a problem where you are unfairly for or unfairly against a group of people. You establish stereotypes that take place and you don't realize that it's happening. So I see some of the comments that said, that's why I can't do Facebook or Twitter anymore. There's really some value in that. But when you take, I think somebody talked about self-inventory. The only real way that I believe that you can identify your bias is to have an honest conversation with somebody who is different from, who has a different opinion about what it is that you're talking about. Right now, because of all the race relations, you have this group of people that believe that Black lives matter. And to, to say the opposite of Black lives matter, they say either blue lives matter or all lives matter that's an inherent right built in there is it's just built to have a be uh be a conflict and we have to just make sure that we're 
we're open to recognize that maybe I do have a blind a blind spot because I'm on me. I'm a black man, so saying Black Lives Matter, I'm I'm personally vested in that. I understand that when when you say Black Lives Matter, it doesn't mean that no other lives matter. It means that right now, black men and black women are being uh, killed by not only police officers but just average everyday citizens, and it seems to be no seems to be no justice. So. It's not saying that the same is not happening to other people, that the police are only killing black people, but it just seems to be within the black community because it right. happens so frequently. That's something to us. Now, do I have a bias and, and do I have a blind spot on that? Yeah, I do. And I, in order to try to combat it, I will talk to and engage someone in a dialogue to see if maybe I, maybe I have missed it. And in an organization, how do you combat it in an organization? You've got to have different voices at the table. If everybody at the table is saying the same thing, if you all go to the same restaurants, you all watch the same movies, you all vote for the same political candidate, you all attend the same church, guess what? You're going to have the same type of thinking, the same type of value system. Situations can confirm biases because when you're in an organization and you have to be open, you really have to be open to hear, man, I I might I might not totally have it right. I think because our experiences affect how we see everything, our past experiences. Mm-hmm. And sometimes because you spend a lot of time with people with a similar experience, you start to assume that everybody knows where you're coming from. So right, when I hear the term Black Lives Matter, nothing in me reacts to that. It's like, yes, of course they should. But my entire life, I've seen that people can kill people of color, especially Black people, with impunity, not just here, but lots of places. Mm -hmm. So when I hear that, I totally understand why that has to be stated. And then when I hear other people assuming that that means other lives are not important, I have to remember that the lens that you see the world through is not ubiquitous. And maybe that person hasn't had an experience that would help them understand that instantly the way that you do. And only now that people are able to record all these examples of racism, does it feel like people who aren't directly affected by this are getting hip to it? Of course, I already knew this was happening. This is... This is just life as I know it. And I was born in the 80s. It's not like I was around in the 60s during the civil rights movement. But after that, things don't change overnight. You can't legislate righteousness, essentially. Like you can't force people to do right. You can't force people to be kind. Just because you change a law doesn't mean everybody's mindset has changed. And so logically, we should know that these problems didn't go away overnight. But no one was recording it. And oftentimes, because of our culture here in the United States as Americans, when somebody marginalized speaks up about their experience, people gaslight them, meaning they say, oh, you didn't see what you think you saw. Oh, are you sure that's what it was about? Are you... So people have been saying this is a problem, but no one's been listening. Now that we have the technology to show people that this is a problem, Now, a lot of people are really hearing this for the first time. So some people that feel so distressed by this because they've been dealing with this their entire life are being put off by people who are reacting to this as though it's brand new, but it is brand new to them. (laughs) So it just, this is a massive opportunity for growth and learning to communicate effectively with other people and learning that you cannot assume anything about what someone knows going into a conversation. So you may take something the wrong way, assuming, well, they're saying this to be nasty. They're saying this to be hateful. But if they don't have access to the information that you have access to, you can't necessarily make those assumptions. Right. So it's very tricky. And I will just share this with you. I have some good friends of mine. I came out of the restaurant industry and I was sharing this with some friends of mine just last week. And this is 
we'll call it a short story. I said, the last time I went out to, went out to eat with, with my white friends. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I have two male white colleagues that are great guys. And we, we worked in the restaurant industry and we were good friends. And we all left that company and went to work for another company. And at the, at the time we were working in Alpharetta, Georgia, and I don't know where people are, are dialing in from, but in Alpharetta, it's a, it's a more affluent area in the Metro Atlanta area, predominantly white and just, it's a ritzy, there's a lot of money up there. And so our office was in Alpharetta and these two guys, we were just, they asked me, say, Hey, Irv, you want to go out for lunch? I was like, yeah, sure. So I jumped in the car and this is in the year 2001 and it's now that was 19 years ago 2000 and 2001 they asked me if i wanted to go out to lunch i said yeah so i hopped in the back seat with them thought nothing of it we're driving in alpharetta and we're stopped at a stoplight i'm in the back seat and the the guy in the front seat a police officer came out and went in front of us and turned and went that way and he just was sitting, he was sitting at the, in the driver's seat and he glared at the police officer. He's like, and I was in the back seat. I said, man, what are you doing? He's like, I hate cops. I just can't stand them. And he didn't realize I was in the back seat freaking out. I said, don't you ever do that with me in the car. I would never, ever put, trust you to put me in the situation. He thought I had lost my mind. I said, because what's going to happen is when those cops come and pull this car over and they see the two of you and the me in the back seat. I'm going to be face down. I need to go home to my wife. I need to go home alive. Don't do that with me in the car. That was the last time that I got in the car with my, my white colleagues for lunch because I needed, they didn't understand the lens that I was, uh, that I was coming from or that I had, what experiences that I had. They had no filter to actually understand it. And I don't blame them, but it still can't stop me from having survival mode. So when we start talking about changing things within our country and with our, within our organizations, we have to really take an honest and honest inventory. And the truth of the matter is if you really boil it down to the simplest terms, it's a matter of the heart. We can write all kinds of laws, all, all kinds of legislation. We can break all, we can do every, write everything on the books. But if, if a person doesn't want to change their heart, if their heart is evil, if their heart is wicked, there's nothing you can do to change that. And that's not my desire to change it. My mentor taught me many years ago, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. If you make somebody believe something, they don't really believe it. What you're doing is you're making them accepted by power and domination. And we already have proven that just dominating somebody does not produce cooperation. It produces compliance. And there's a difference between cooperation and compliance. Um, one of the things that I also wanted to talk about when we talk about bias is where we want to get to is a place where they don't stifle our individual growth or our organizational growth or our growth as a as a country. Because I really, I love being an American. I'm a veteran. I stand for the pledge, but I also support those that have that, that want to protest by kneeling because I understand the reason why. But we seem polarized by this because I think everybody would agree that it's not right to take a human life, but we tend to, in America, even our organizations, our school nutrition departments can be polarized because so many times we focus on uh, the what. And I think Simon said, this is Simon said, does what's called the golden circle. We focus on the what and the how, but we don't ask why. If you get to the reason why something happened, or they ask why people are rioting and looting. And I don't support rioting and looting, but I do support protests. But if you beat somebody down for so long, Sometimes the way they respond, what they do or how they do it makes no rational sense, but they've been uh, disenfranchised for so long that it's something that just happens. I was on a, a podcast last week and I didn't mean to share and I hope no one's offended by this example, but the, the example that I gave and somebody shared with me that it was a powerful example was Lorena Bobbitt. 
Now, how does Lorena Bobbitt fit in this conversation? Lorena Bobbitt did a heinous thing to her husband. But how long was she beaten down? How long had she been abused? And when you do that to a person or a group of people for a prolonged period of time and anger gets gets built up and and and, and it gets repressed, it's going to spill out. And it happens in our in our teams and in our organizations. So how do we how do we get to the place where we can be open and, and receive what people are saying? Because what she what she did was terrible. But why she did it, she saw that she had no other recourse. And many times the, the people in our on our teams and in our organizations, if our organizations are built on bias and or I shouldn't say built on bias, but if bias is a part of our culture, then there's a whole group of people that have a feeling and and something is going on within them that you have no clue. And if you found out about it, you would, as the organizational leader, you would be up in arms. Oh my God, how did this happen? And it happened because you, because we have these blind spots and you don't, you don't realize we, we talk about bias and diversity, but we, and teams are, organizations are always trying to be diverse, but what is, what is diversity? What do people really see diversity as being? Many times they think diversity is just, let's have a multicultural group of people. And now we're diverse because we have a bunch of different people. Having a bunch of different people is not diversity. People from Indian, Hispanic, Black, white, male, female, different genders, different uh, sexual orientations, all just having them on one team does not make you diverse. But when you appreciate the things that make you diverse and by valuing the things that make you diverse, that's how true diversity comes into play. Because we are, we are biased. We are biased by nature. You be, might be interested to find out that neuroscientists have found that the tendency to be biased resi actually resides in our brain. And it's an automatic thing. It resides in an area of the brain called the amygdala, which is part of the limbic system. And the thing that happens is because it's part of the limbic system, that's where our, our emotions take place. And it's the subconscious. It happens like that. It happens before you can think about it. When people are surprised that they have a biased opinion or surprised when they find out that people think they feel a certain way about them, it's because many times it's because your subconscious reacts way before your conscious mind has a chance to catch up. You're subcon you subconsciously have a bias or a, a, a stereotype or an aversion or a dislike of a person because they're different from you. And your body language or your facial expression mm -hmm. says it right away. Because you we've all walked in and we, we've seen somebody come in and, and you just knew right off the bat that they couldn't stand the ground that you walk in. Mm -hmm. I know people, some people right now, when I walk in and I... I don't, I know that you despise me and you don't like me. That's okay. You might afterwards, by the time your conscious mind realizes that your, that your subconscious mind is frowning, your conscious mind says, oh, the politically correct thing to do right now is smile and say, hey, how you doing, Irvin? That's not diversity. That's not honesty, but it's part of all of who we are. So it comes from us being really, really, really honest with ourselves. I wasn't, I wasn't even sure if I was going to share, share this piece, but I feel like it, it maybe it's appropriate, but I was, um, I realized when I started doing the research for, for ANC and I was, was again, looking at myself, I realized that I have a bias. <clears throat> I have a bias against white men that are in my peer group. Not that I don't, I don't like you, but I have a bias. I have an assumption that I assume about, about white men. And I assume that white men, and please, if you're a white man out there, just please um, put a pin in that question right there so we can, we can go back to it, okay? But I assume that white men, when they're not in my presence, that they tell racial jokes, that they have very uh, racially tense conversations, 
and they really have something, a hidden agenda when they're not in my presence. They might smile in my face, but they might look different. It looks different behind me. What I and, and I started asking myself, where did this come from? I wasn't raised like that. My parents really raised, I came, grew up in a, a Christian home. We love Jesus and we were taught to accept all men. So when I started examining, how did I get there? And I didn't realize this. I was in my 50s when I really realized that. There was a five-year window from 1981 to like 1986 that I had three particular things that happened with white men that were close to me. The first one in ninth, uh, in ninth grade doing yearbook at the end of the year, my first year at the, the school in the suburbs. And this, this guy, I'm not going to give his name, but he wrote in my yearbook, Irvin, you're a loud mouth. He said a homophobic slur. And then he said, and he wrote that in my yearbook. And I was, I, it, it took me, it took me by surprise. I was like, what, where did this come from? Two, three years later, uh, the star of our basketball team used, was talking and he used a, used a uh, racial slur direct, directed at me, called me a jigaboo. But I didn't even realize, I didn't even know, I'm up, up north, I didn't know what a jigaboo was. I had no clue. Imagine me, he said that, I was like, oh, okay, all right, <laughs> pass the soap. And I kept it rolling. And the last one was in my freshman year of college, uh, guy that I used to play basketball with. And he thought it was really funny. And we were, I was up at the campus pub at Halloween and he came and stood next to me and he was dressed in a full authentic, the real linen clan uniform. And he came and stood next to me with his arms folded and started smiling and laughing. And I was incensed. And I didn't swing on him because I was the only black. I was. I went to a small school in upstate New York. I was one of two uh, African Americans there. They had two black, two other black students that were exchange students from Africa. So it was two African American men there. So I couldn't. I did didn't feel like a, my rage was allowed to explode onto him. But from that time. I realized that over time I had developed this. Now I'm glad that I realized it because now I can consciously try to make sure that I'm not um, projecting that on people. But that's the very real thing that we're dealing with is the people's bias and how it can have an effect on the people around us. But I realized that it's not, it was not necessary. It was directed at me, but it really wasn't about me but it took years of going through this to really really realize that so when you see me today and when i that post that i posted was was it rarer than a unicorn i'm a black man in school nutrition i have those are just three four experiences that i carry with me all the time that have me looking with life through life with a different lens and i realize that i have these biases but because i'm aware of these biases i can work to work to try to counteract them. I know they're not the way they're supposed to be, so I can consciously work to counteract them. But the challenge yeah. is to those who are there, what are you doing with the biases that you might have? That all makes so much sense. It's hard to let go of a bad experience and it's the way our brain is wired. When you have a negative experience, it historically would have made more sense for you to retain that information mm -hmm. than positive information. In order to survive, you need to remember every risky situation you come across mm -hmm. to keep yourself safe. So this is a natural human tendency. When something negative happens to you, it's embedded in your mind and it may make you irrational when you're dealing with people who remind you of previous trauma. And I don't think everyone understands that every single Black person has those stories everyone, because it is so common for people to bully Black people. Like the whole country's doing it, essentially. If you look in the news and you see there's a shooting, what is the first question that everybody has? 
Like if there's a school shooting, we say, what happened to this child? How did we miss the warning signs? Oh, they were bullied for years. No one intervened. How did we miss this? Well, if you are constantly being bullied and made fun of almost by the whole country, how do you think that's going to play out? People feel so beaten on. And then you have all these interpersonal one-on-one negative experiences. I've had that happen to me several times where someone said, oh, but you're not really black. And then proceeded to say something ridiculous like, oh, you're an Oreo, as though that's some kind of a compliment and not almost a slur. That is. So that's something that's good to communicate and put out there that if people seem to you irrationally angry you don't know how much trauma they have and how long it took for that to build up. Mm-hmm. And that also when someone is so angry and so heartbroken, the grief drives them mad. Like you mentioned earlier, hurt people do bizarre things that aren't rational. And yeah. there's no justifying it when you're in a rational state, but you have to understand how extremely distressed people behave. And that's what we're seeing. I, I was working with a relationship expert that actually was doing the podcast and I shared something about trauma and how things are traumatizing. And we talk about PTSD and what I was sharing was that we look at what was happening to the people when they, they had these camps on the border and these kids were getting separated from uh, their family. And I remember so many of the people that were talking were saying how traumatizing it is to separate a child from their parents, to have them ripped from their parents and just going through such a traumatic experience. They said, these kids are going to need counseling. These mm-hmm. kids may never overcome what they've been through. And when I looked at the story of the African-American, I said, what type of trauma, 400 years, over 400 years of trauma on top of trauma. And, and what she shared with me was something that I've, I started to really internalize and really I've, I'm starting to apply it to the people that I meet. And she said, when you're trying to fix trauma or deal with trauma, she said, number one, trauma must be validated. Hmm. It should not be minimized and it has side effects. And so many people want to look at what's going on right now. And what you, what you're seeing is people who have been traumatized by when you george floyd is a uh, household name right now but some tamir rice trayvon martin emmett till those are household names within the black the black household the black community but to the rest of the world they're just finding out about these things it doesn't do anything to grow or to develop the relationships and the dialogue when you, a, a person or a group of people have been traumatized by something, and then you, because your confirmation bias, because you don't agree with the trauma, then your dialogue that you now, well, that's not really true. You, you can always find an example. I thought it was really an example of somehow that story or that narrative isn't true. And Many people are posting, I have friends on both sides and I try to keep my comments down the middle, but sometimes I can't be down the middle. You gotta, I have to make a choice. I am who I am. My, my life is what it is, but I am one that believes that black lives matter because when we went to, my sons told me that I'm raising two, my wife and I raising two black men. So I'm very emotional when it comes to this. And when my son said, dad, we want to go to the protest, he's 20, once 20, once 15. And I was my, I had a, a moment. I haven't even shared this with my wife. When I looked at my son holding up a sign and his sign at the protest was stop killing us. I never, my dad never saw me having to go through something like that. And it, it broke my heart to see this, but what breaks my heart even more is when you, when you hear and see people saying, for example, we're not saying, I don't believe that we should defund the police. I think that's a bad move. I don't, I think that would be unwise, but there's problems within the police department. 
but we try to pretend you want to put up pictures of all of the great police officers who are who don't believe the Black Lives Matter movement, or you show me a picture of a police officer that was killed in the line of duty, my heart breaks. My heart really does break. And it's terrible what's happening to the good police officers, but it doesn't erase what's been happening in the Black community for 400 years. So when, when people do this, what it does is it pours vinegar inside an open yes. room because you fail to validate the trauma that we're sharing. You've heard the old expression, whatever you say after the butt, it erases everything that was before it. So yeah, yeah, Black Lives Matter, but all lives matter. What you've essentially said yeah. was Black lives don't matter. And a lot of people don't realize that. You can't, you shouldn't minimize a person's experience. I don't know what it's like to be raped. I have no desire, but if you victimize and you take, I hate to use that example because most of the people listening are women and, and yes, rape can happen to men. I, I admit that, but most of the victims of rape are women. But if I minimize it and try to turn the victim into the perpetrator, somehow say that, well, what were you wearing? Oh, you were drinking that night. Now her trauma has been just ripped wide open because yes. I failed to, at, at the, the bare minimum, I failed to validate it. That is such a good point. The validation makes a difference. And now that there's more science around trauma, we're starting to see more and more how this is also a public health crisis. And people are always talking about the disparities in between marginalized groups and people who are part of the dominant social group here, we have all these differences in health outcomes, but people keep trying to attribute it to behavior. But now that we look at all the research about trauma and stress and how stress destroys the body on a molecular level, and one of the only ways that stress is processed and handled is when it's validated. Absolutely. And having access to therapy is so important, but there's so many people who don't have access to therapy. And it's funny when I, I essentially went to therapy for being black in hindsight, I realized that's what it was. I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know what all the low grade anxiety was about and all the low grade tension and just frustration was about, but unpacking it with someone who studies that, even though it was a white American therapist, just looking at the science she could go through and validate experiences and explain this reaction that you're having. This is a human reaction. And if we did this to any group of people, this is most likely how they would respond. This is what the research shows. And you can even see in people who are descendants of people from war-torn countries, you will see a difference in how a grandchild processes stress if their grandparent lived through the war. So if we're descendants of people who survived crimes against humanity that were traumatized to the max, it only makes sense that our ability to process stress, it's changed. Right. A lot of people go super numb. That's a coping mechanism. So we see that. So people are trying, a lot of very well-meaning people who haven't been on the wrong end of all this abuse and who are just like realizing, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. They're trying to reach out, but some people are so numb, they can't be open to that right now. They can't make room for it. So we really need to think about this in terms of generational trauma and then all the stress of COVID, which is just the new trauma and the constant invalidation. So we see the victim blaming constantly when it comes to inordinate amount of violence with police brutality. What did the child say? Or what did the young man say? What were they, honestly, what were they wearing? Were they dressed respectively? Were they in the wrong neighborhood? All these questions. You shouldn't have to be a perfect victim for people to be able to see that there's a problem. Right. And yet, as it stands, in most cases, you do have to be the perfect victim. And thankfully, because of video, 
people will see the perfect victim sometimes and say, oh, now I see a problem. I guess I can agree with that. But imagine how that compounds the damage of the initial bullying that you went through and the abuse. And then everyone telling you you're imagining it. Everyone was saying a few years ago, we're in a post-racial society. I don't even see color. Just that juxtaposition of everyone telling you everything's fine. And it's not. Right. When you're a black person and a a white person says, I don't see color, I'm not speaking for all black people, but most black people hear that ain't that's not true. Because the first thing you see is color. Now, granted, what you're trying to say is I don't judge based on color, and I understand what you're trying to say, but when you say I don't see color. America was founded on the values that we're we're fighting against or we're trying to overcome right now. And the understanding that we have to get through this traumatic, we have to go through this trauma. Everybody wants to get, you know, oftentimes they want, they want peace. And what a lot of times, if, if you want a peaceful marriage, if you want peace in the Middle East, you want peace. What a lot of people don't realize is in order to get peace, you've got to go through a war. A peace accord or peace treaty, a peace treaty takes place between two warring factions. So if we really want peace, we're going to have to go through a war to get there. And it's going to take, it's a war that takes place individually in the hearts and the minds of people, but those people that are willing to stand up. And I don't want to paint a picture of doom and gloom because there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There are things that people can do to stem the tide of systemic racial injustice. There are things that can you can do on an individual and in a community, in a corporate or organizational level. And as a country, there are things that we can do because it's not all doom and gloom. They, neuroscientists do say that you can de-bias yourself or you can de-bias an organization and the primary um, thing that you need to do to start doing that is to begin the dialogue and start having the conversations. The best way for you to tackle internal bias is to start talking to people different than you, mm. asking the questions, hearing, listen with your heart, not with your ears, listen with your heart and see if there's some, is there some truth to it? And then be open and being willing to change. You've got to be willing. We've got to be willing to embrace change. And it's on both sides. I want to go on record and say that this is not a white issue. This is not a black issue. This is a human issue. And it's a human heart issue because you've got to be open and willing to change. But it starts off with dialogue. I thought it was fascinating. I was talking with my best friend earlier today and I you know, discovered something that when I posted, put the post out there, it really was to start the dialogue. I had some of the richest, oh my God, some of the richest conversation with white colleagues that I would have never had without us being in this crisis situation that made us have a real dialogue about some real substantive changes. And so I'm a much better person because of those conversations. And they ask questions and we and we talked and heard each other's hearts. But there are, are many others that instead of reaching out to have a dialogue, and it's a human thing, people tend to, on social media, what I see, they would rather, instead of talking to a Black person, instead of talking to the white person that they work with and asking them, tell me about this thing that I don't understand. Please tell me about this Black Lives Matter. What does it mean? Case in point, Drew Brees, football player for the New Orleans Saints. I love Drew Brees. He's a, I'm not a football fan, but of the person, he's always shown to be a straight-up guy. And what he posted when everything started going, going sideways was he posted something saying he would never, ever support kneeling for the national anthem because he thought it was disrespectful to veterans and his grandfather was a veteran and so on and so forth. And there was a tremendous backlash against them from people from all over. They're burning jerseys and all of that. I still held out some, some reservations because I realized oh, that wasn't 
that didn't line up with what I thought Drew. I don't know him personally, but that's what I didn't line up with what I thought Drew Brees, who he was. A couple days later, he posted something and said, hey, I've talked to some friends of mine. I Now I get it. And he posted that and said, I get it. I can honor that willingness to change. But I have some people that that are friends and family that say, I don't believe Drew Brees. I'm not going to accept his apology. Mm-hmm. But my retort back then was, well, what do you want? You want right. people to change their minds. He changed his mind. But then you say, I don't believe it. You've got to be willing to open up the dialogue. But the key to this was he went to, I think it was Shannon Sharp. He went to somebody he knew and trusted on the other side and asked them the question. But the phenomenon that I see happening in social media is, let's use, take this for example. I believe that Black Lives Matter and that, that there are some bad actors, bad cops out there that are just, that are terrible, that need to go. They are racist, members of the Klan, yada, 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 all of those stereotypes. So I go and find a post of a white police officer that believes what I believe and says, says the exact same things that I believe instead of going to the white officer right down the street that lives in my neighborhood that I can say, hey, man, can I have an honest conversation with you? about what's really going on. I find that there are a a lot of people, a a lot of white people will go and find uh, the most obscure example of one black person that says the one thing that agrees with what their position when 99.9% of the rest of the black population doesn't believe that. So there's no black models. I don't speak for all black men. I don't speak for all black people. I'm a 54-year-old black man. I grew up in upstate New York. I went to an all-black church. I went to, my high school was predominantly Italian. And my family is predominantly black. My workspace is is predominantly white. And it always has been. So I've had a bunch of different experiences that lead me to who I am. So my opinion is 100% right to me. But I don't speak for all black people. But if you want to know what I'm thinking, if you want to know, if, if you have a confusion about something that's intrinsic in the black culture, what is it about this, uh, I don't know, rap music, hip hop? I'm from New York. I love hip hop. But what is it? Ask somebody about it instead of standing on the outside judging. We're more willing to go pull up a post of some total stranger than to go in the cubicle next to us and ask somebody that's right there that we have immediate access to. And that's where we have to, if we really want to start to change and start changing ourselves, changing our organizations, that's one of the main places that we can start is it starts with us. Yeah. I I think that's a great point that we need to remember in this industry, I feel like we are family, but it's dysfunctional when there's an issue in a family and everybody knows about it and nobody's saying anything about it. So you leave people to their imaginations to imagine what you really think about the issue. And I know some people are afraid of saying the wrong thing right now, but I like your advice that if we could all stay open because communication is so, so important right now for us to continue being functional as organizations, for us not to become a dysfunctional family. We need to open those lines of communication up and be patient and really listen with a view to understanding. Listen, trying to understand the other person, remembering you don't have the same experiences going into the situation. And if you make any assumptions, are you really going to achieve communication? But we also need to give people room for their grief and to know that some people are going, not everybody has the emotional energy right now to have that conversation with you, but there are people out there who do and who want to. And so just, let's just remember that we're all family and a lot of the families in a lot of emotional trouble right now. And like you said, we're not a monolith. My experience is completely different. Like, My church life was growing up majority white. My husband's white. My family lives down South. And so 
most of my family around me is white. So it's a very different experience. <laughs> and at the same time, I feel like when you understand or you assume that somebody cares about you or sees you in a positive light, you assume positive things about them when they say things you don't agree with. You right. think, huh, well, there might be a reason they believe that. So like, if you say something I don't agree with, I think, well, maybe he's had a different experience. I don't immediately think, ah, he's awful. So we, right. we need to be aware of that tendency in ourselves to not give people an inch. And like you said, people can't undo mistakes they've made in the past. To expect people to be able to do that, it's not possible. So yeah. what's our real goal here? We want to move forward. And there is hope. And I, I am very encouraged by how many people have participated today. I don't want to end on a negative because I think it's really important when you talk about these heavy topics that you have to really end on a positive note and a positive note of truth. But what do you do about it, about getting, creating a more diverse culture or more diverse organization or to yourself to be more diverse? I got four steps or four Awesome. key points that you can you can employ the first one is exposure you got to expose yourself to someone outside of your current life your current sphere of influence expose yourself to something different the second is dialogue you've got to be able to dialogue with people who are different from different from you and dialogue isn't you doing all the talking dialogue is a two-way street I had some people well, during this process, recent process, I had so many, when I, I told you I had some rich conversations, but I have a conversation. I told her, I said, look, all those questions that you wanted, to, that you always wanted to ask a black person, but you didn't feel it like it was, it was appropriate, ask it. And right now the door is open. It's a two-way street. And I always wanted to ask, I always wanted to ask um, the question about a mayonnaise sandwich. So I got to ask her about it. Said, Can you explain a, explain a mayonnaise sandwich to me? New York black people didn't eat mayonnaise sandwich. So, um, so the dialogue. The third one is inclusion. Don't always just do things within your group, but include different, include different people. I know you're talking to different people and you're exposing yourself to different people but include them. That means to value what differences they bring to the group and include it in how you lead as, a, as, a, as an organization, include different perspectives on it. Because if everybody thinks alike, then you, uh, most of you are not necessary. And the fourth one is honesty. There's a uh, acronym for which, what you think before you speak. And the for it, T is, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? The first part of it, is it true? Be honest, first of all, with yourself and be honest with other people. It takes a lot of courage to be honest and tell somebody you don't like something that they did. But get past the emotion and get to the place of being honest. If you do those four things, your organization or you as an individual can really start growing by leaps and bounds in the area of being less biased and more diverse and maybe taking some of the blind spots out. So number one, exposure. Two, dialogue. Three is inclusion. And four is honesty. And those are just four quick steps that we can employ to try to be better as an organization and as an individual. That is perfect. Thank you for ending on a positive note. I do think we have to get comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations. And like you said, it's going to be, it's like a war within ourselves to get bias out of our hearts. And like you mentioned earlier, this isn't targeted at one group of people. This is a human tendency. We all have areas we need to work on. Someone called me out on every time someone says something about their doctor, I assume that they're male. And how pitiful is that? Like, that's a bias that doesn't even work in my favor. But that is something that the human mind does as well. <laughs> so if I'm not exempt from misogyny, then hello, this can happen to anybody. So don't feel bad if you've made mistakes. We're just going to move forward. And it's all love. What we really are wanting is just 
to be family and to be on the same page with all members of our school nutrition family, our human family, our American family. This is about moving forward in a positive way. So everyone feels included and celebrated. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you have any questions or feel like this is a topic we need to delve deeper into, please just let me know. As always, you can find me on social media as at School Nutrition RD. I'm on LinkedIn as Dahlia Kinsey. In response to all the stress and grief that this has stirred up for so many Black people, I'm hosting a virtual summit focused on Black joy. What does that mean? It means different things to different people. So I'm bringing together a pretty diverse group of professionals. Some are healers, some are financial planners, different people of color who have experience with multiplying the joy in their own lives and managing stress. And they want to share with the broader community that is having a hard time right now, some positive things they can focus on that they can control in their lives that can increase their joy, bring their stress levels down, and reduce their risk of negative health outcomes. That's my primary concern as a dietitian. I believe in equity, and it really troubles me that in public health, people don't focus on the damage that chronic stress related to being treated poorly because of your race or because of any marginalized identity that you have ignoring the cause of that stress and just continuing to focus on behavioral things doesn't make any logical sense. Racism is a public health issue. So if you feel like this summit is something you want to check out, please visit www.blackjoysummit.com. And if you are an ally and you would like to support the event, you are also welcome. Please check out the site And you'll see there's a special Allied track that comes with a cool limited edition Allied supporter t-shirt and and also gives you access to a special how to be an anti-racist, how to be an ally learning track. So I hope you will check that out. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a great week.